Escape velocity. Welcome to Escape Velocity Radio, episode 11. Derek, can you believe we're at episode 11? Uh, I'm surprised. I'm happy. Um, I'm slightly aroused. Right. So we get listener feedback, but we're not going to read any today. No. But one thing that has come up a few times I've noticed in, uh, in feedback is people commenting on the audio quality of the show. In that it's good or bad? Well, people, I don't know if they're armchair engineers or what the hell they are, but they... People are commenting about levels of compression or if something sounds the EQ balance on a, on a particular voice or something. Who? Who's saying this? I, I've seen these things. Huh. And you know what I have to say to those people? What do you have to say to them? I say they're right. But here's the thing. I don't care. This isn't a fucking record. It's a fucking podcast. It's true. We only have so much time. We just fire up these machines and go. The audio quality on our podcast far surpasses the audio quality of most podcasts out there. I listen to quite a few podcasts and most sound like garbage. Our sounds fine. Fuck. Sounds fine. If you can hear us, then it's fine. If people want this show to sound better, send us fucking money because we're operating on compromised gear. Look at this fucking, look at this interface is a fucking, it's consumer level interface. It's true. It's not a pro level interface. We're no. using fucking, these, look at the monitors we're using. Look at the head. My headphones are taped together. That is true. That's no exaggeration. We have, to jiggle, fact, we have to jiggle the cables so we get signal through our headphones. I'm not even getting signal in my headphones right now. Are you serious? Yes. Oh, for fuck's sakes. It's just, just stop complaining about the audio. Is you it time for me to set up the donate link on the website? Set up a donate, a donut link and send us some donuts, vegan donuts, please. Because in reality, if you looked at this gear... And looked at this situation, looked at our lives, and looked at the two people trying to do this thing, we would get a standing ovation <laughs> for how this podcast sounds. So just shut the fuck up and enjoy your time on earth and don't worry about such things. And that's what I have to say. So Derek, happy Sunday. I think it's fair to say you're the your Escape Velocity Radio's resident movie critic. <laughs> How is that fair to say? Cuz you watch a lot of movies. Yeah, but I usually I'm uh, my non-critical. Okay, okay non-critical. You're, you're Escape Velocity Radio's resident uncritical movie critic. <laughs> movie booster. Movie booster. Yeah. Whereas you walk out of half the movies you see, even when you're watching them in your own house. I made it through 10 minutes of the new Star Trek. Yeah. Before I walked out and went home. 10 minutes. No, it was probably more like 25 minutes. I asked Helena if we could go after 10 minutes, but she wanted to see it Stick through. it out. Stick it out a little longer. And then she realized, oh yeah, this is a movie about stupid men. 
it takes a lot more for me to abandon my investment. This could be a theme of my life, in fact, in most things. It takes a lot for me to abandon my investment in something, uh, whether that's 10, 25 for a movie and me going there, waiting in line, getting a seat. Am I going to do all that just to leave? But you saw a movie today that I... I, who hate movies, hate almost every movie I see, was so looking forward to. That's true. And what was the movie? So the movie, Chris, was uh, Brad Pitt's new summer blockbuster, World War Z. You left your house. Let me understand this. You left your house. Well, I left George's house, actually. You left George's house, took your wallet to a commercial movie theater, gave them money, and went in, and you watched the movie... And didn't enjoy it. Did not enjoy it, no. But you sat through the whole thing. I did. I listened to the audiobook of World War Z. Yes. And I I, I don't know if it was because I listened to it late at night. I found it at times terrifying and engaging and a nice piece of speculative fiction about what could happen to human civilization when faced with a total catastrophe. Yeah. I've heard the same thing. I have not uh, partaken of the book, but I will. It's on my list. But the movie sucked. The, well, the movie was just, there's no point. There was absolutely no point in making that movie. Why? There's been a bunch of zombie movies made. Yeah. Somewhat spurned on by the release of 28 Days Later, many years ago. And it's kind of been a resurgence. And you know, there's just, it's been, there was nothing new. They made the movie so they could show you some special effects of large amounts of infected people right. moving really fast, climbing all on top that of each other. That looked crazy though. It looks crazy, but that is the only redeeming quality of the movie is but the is that, scenes where they show that. Is that exciting when it's happening? Uh, yeah, it's moderate. It's titillating. But do they show all those in the previews? Uh, they no. showed like 50% of those in the previews. Oh, really? So yeah. there's not like some crazy one where you just cannot believe No, you seeing. see the crazy one in the preview. Oh, for fuck's sake. Which is, okay, now this is the the most infuriating thing, and I'm sure by the time we release this, I can only imagine that many other commentators will have written about this most pernicious aspect of the movie. Yes. But midway through the movie, uh, they go to Israel. Right. And Israel has... Oh, uh, do I have to... Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Okay. They go to Israel, and, and Israel has uh, purportedly been be able to survive this thus far because they have built a giant wall around Israel. So they get there and they are secure and Brad Pitt is given a tour. And during this tour, he's given a lecture by this guy about how uh, Israel learned its lesson in always imagining the impossible. So how did they get ahead of the curve and build this or finish this wall to keep out the infected and oh we learned our lesson in the 30s we never thought that there would be concentration camps and then there were and then in the 70s we never thought that the arabs would invade and then they did and so it brings him to the point well i was the one who is dissenting on this decision to ignore these reports of the uh, of the undead so i decided to take the initiative and we finished this wall so then they go and they tour the wall and then they see there's all these entrance points with security checks. There's checkpoints coming in. And Brad Pitt's character is like, oh, you're letting people in. And he's like, we figure every person we let in 
is another person who doesn't become one of them. So they're allowing people in at these security checkpoints because Israel is, of course, the implication, an open and free democratic society. They are looking to save humanity. And then amongst the people that they are letting in is a contingent of Palestinians who have Palestinian flags. And the Palestinians begin singing a song, presumably a uh, religious or it's in Arabic. Mm -hmm. And they all start chanting. And in this movie, these zombies are attracted to loud noises. So the Palestinians start chanting. And because of the volume of their chants, the zombies outside of the wall are drawn to it. And they, that's the scene you see in the trailer where they all pile up on the wall. Mm -hmm. And so, so this is the moral of this part of the story. Israel uh, has made an attempt to save humanity by building this wall. They allow all comers in, but then the Arabs that they let in specifically Mm -hmm. from Palestine, fuck it up by (laughs) chanting too loud and the zombies cross the wall and they overrun Israel. That's what happens in the movie. It is, it is impossible that that is not a deliberate storyline written. I mean, all it takes is one screenwriter who's like, I'm going to make my little point here about defending essentially the Israeli uh, policies, defending the separation wall. Interesting, Derek. You know, it's an interesting segue into what we were going to talk about today. It is. It is. What were we going to talk about today? Uh, Stephen Hawking is a zombie. <laughs> right. Stephen Hawking is... A, I've always thought something was off about him. Yeah, he looks like a zombie. Derek, you heard that celebrated physicist, author of A Brief History of Time, the universe in a nutshell, Stephen Hawking, mm-hmm. canceled his appearance in Israel due to pressure from his academic colleagues to recognize the uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Does that, does that sound accurate to you? That is accurate, yes. Is it? It was It was the BDS movement? Yes. What is the BDS movement? Boycott, divestment, and sanctions. What is that? The BDS movement, Chris, the modern movement that started in 2005 that formally calls itself the BDS movement, they claim to be representatives of Palestinian civil society, And they, quote, call upon international civil society organizations and people of conscience all over the world to impose broad boycotts and implement divestment initiatives against Israel, similar to those applied to South Africa during the apartheid era. Right. So in this case with Stephen Hawking, uh, this would be part of the academic boycott where he was encouraged to not attend and speak at Uh, an academic conference at Tel Aviv University. Uh, This is a pretty huge withdrawal of services by one of the most high-profile academics on the planet. Of course, this this is also something that hits a little closer to home for us as fans of music. Yes. Producers of music. Because the BDS movement has called on artists to recognize the boycott and not travel or at least not perform in Israel. Yeah, correct. correct. And this came to a head a little bit with with Jello Biafra with Jello Biafra a couple years ago or last year or a year and a half ago or something like that yeah yep. with uh, Jello Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine who had planned to play I believe one show in Tel Aviv I think that's right and then uh, suffered a fury of outrage from people involved with the BDS movement including some people from inside of Israel, here's a little clip of somebody from inside of Israel. Hello, Jello. So, you're still coming to Israel. After all that effort of people trying to get you not to come here, 
You're still coming. Why? Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Tali. I'm an Israeli activist with Anarchists Against the Wall and Boycott From Within. I enjoy inhaling tear gas in the morning and getting beat up by armed soldiers. I also enjoy long walks on the beach when it's not occupied. What I don't enjoy is people like you, celebrities, radical celebrities, coming here because you're so radical, performing, and then coming to see all the suffering 20 minutes away from where you performed. And then saying it's different because it's you and you understand. If you understand, if you're so radical, then you should know better. You should know not to come here, do a performance for the occupier, and then come and visit the occupied and tell them how much you feel for them, how much you understand. Understand? Understand. You want to come here and see for yourself, do it. But do not do it on the backs of the Palestinian people. I call on you, Jello, to respect the Palestinian call to boycott Israel. I obviously are coming under a lot of fire for this. And for some reason, you think that you should be ignoring it. I heard you just closed your Facebook page for comments. Well, then we know one thing. We know you're listening. But we also know another thing. We know you're covering your ears and singing some kind of tune. Which isn't very anarchist and which definitely isn't in solidarity with the oppressed. Jello, if you need to think it over, if you're not sure what's going on, please come here. But don't perform before apartheid. Don't be the stooge for the empire. Ask people before you come here how you can come here and not break the picket line. You deem yourself an anarchist? How can I flunk one? So there was an example of some of the, of what I assume would be some of the typical reaction to the announcement that Jello was going to play a show in Tel Aviv from, that, that was from somebody inside of Israel, but somebody, an anarchist, a self-described anarchist who uh, supports the BDS movement. And um, while I think there's some definite kernels of meaning and truth in there, I find the, the snarky grandstand delivery so annoying. Yes. That's silly. A, that's it's, it is silly. It's something yeah. we would have done when we were nineteen. Yeah. Well, you would have done it when you were fourteen. <laughs> I would have done it when I was nineteen. I did lots of that when I was fourteen. So in Biafra's response to a lot of that stuff, he 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 was critical of mm-hmm. of being browbeaten or bullied. Yes. In, into signing on or something. But he did have. Uh, I found a little clip of him talking in general about about his experience with one of his bandmates from Guantanamo School of Medicine. Let's just give it a quick listen. I didn't know how organized it was, how big it was, and whether it had the same level of support that the boycott on apartheid South Africa and the infamous Sun City Resort had. So, you know, should Dead Kennedys have played in South Africa as if we could have gotten a gig when punk was the underground, was an underground counter to apartheid and all the fascism going on there. It's uh, very much a double-edged sword, often uh, at least partway up my rear end. In my case, you know, I've been yelled at and called everything in the book and tossed around like a ball in a pinball machine at times ever since I was a kid. 
So uh, having a label, being a controversial person with controversial art, and not not always the the greatest human being in my personal life, who is, you know, I'm used to getting whacked and prepared for it. But uh, Ralph brought up the point when we were in practice is you know this is where the rubber meets the road as far as uh, your political activity versus the band. You know, in this band, we try to do things as a, you know, try to have a consensus always. Uh, but I kind of felt like we could never really come to a consensus because under those conditions, I never really felt like I was going to want to go, want to go, but but I would go. I think it's a different thing when Jello Biafra goes to Israel. I think it's different than like your normal band, like, you know, the bands that we know that have gone, Dillinger Escape Plan, Melvins, you know, a lot of bands that we know have gone. And, but I think it's different because you're political. <laughs> because I'm sort of, sort of a, uh, <laughs> a heat-seeking missile and magnet for uh, controversies and, and tabloid gossip and everything in between. Uh, if I'm going to have more of an opinion on this than just uh, outrage at the excesses done by the extremists on both sides through all this, then it wouldn't hurt to see it up close. My feeling was... Uh, Let's go there and try not to be afraid to criticize the government. And that was as far as it went until other people in the band brought their own concerns and opened up a much deeper discussion about the uh, to play or not to play in Israel. I think like most Americans, my, uh, my view of the Middle East is really, you know, and, and Israel and its policies it's really kind of a patchwork. I don't really know what um, you know what to believe. If people have a problem with us going, and and people who feel really strongly that Israel should be boycotted uh, feel that we shouldn't go, I kind of feel like you know maybe some people on the Palestinian side have a right to have a beef with us about going, and that's they're, they're totally they're totally entitled to that, you know. And if I mean if people want to boycott us, that's fine. You know, like well, if they no, need to do that, not, I'm not going to take that lying <laughs> down. It's one of those things in life where you you make a decision and you're probably going to anger a few people. You know, not only does it mean a lot more than somebody saying, "Oh, you're God, you helped me through high school, autograph my tattoo on my gonads." You know that. You know, it's not the same as somebody saying, "Yeah, you did make a difference in my life." So, in my own small, tiny little way, it proved that I can help influence history. So that clip I pulled up from the internet and it appeared to be uh, attached to some sort of Kickstarter campaign. I didn't actually look into that further because I'm not a journalist. I'm a fucking dad and I'm busy (laughs) and I'd rather drink a beer than check that out. But his position doesn't seem unreasonable to me. The one question you might, people might have is, well, why the fuck would you book a show there in the first place? Mm-hmm. How could you not know about this? But I mean, I think as a band who's actually signed on to a petition, recognizing the BDS movement, the cultural yep. boycott with some of my own reservations, my own independent reservations, the obvious question that comes up for people who do know of what's going on and do believe there is a a legitimate comparison between Israel, Palestine, and apartheid South Africa, 
is, well, if we're going to boycott Israel, why would anybody be going to the States, for example? Exactly. Israel is, a, is propped up by the States. Why would you go there? Why would you go to Canada? Our government, Canada has been singled out as one of the closest allies of Israeli policies. Well, and I also thought when you were playing the clip of the young anarchist yeah. uh, from Israel and she said, oh, come and play and, and support the empire and then go 20 minutes away and see the suffering. I thought, I thought, why don't you come to Winnipeg and play a show here, support the colonial settler state and yeah. then go 20 minutes away and see the misery on any First Nations reserve? Well, which, exactly. What, what are other countries doing to their indigenous populations? Yeah. Or even or even their settler domestic populations, because she says, oh, I like the smell of tear gas in the morning. Right. Well, every yes. established Western state, just look what's happening or even look in Brazil right now. Yeah. Or look anywhere in Europe, the police but apparatus. For us, yeah. And, and for us specifically, look at Canada. This place is yeah. fucking out of hand. Yeah. There should be a boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, I believe, against Canada. If, if the one targeting Israel is legitimate. There should be one against Canada. I don't say that to diminish the seriousness or the objectives of the movement in terms of what Israel's doing, because fuck, it's fucked up. But there are some very prominent pro-Palestinian activists who have come out very strongly against the contemporary BDS movement. Not in, against boycotts as a general tactic, but against the specifics of this movement, right. including the cultural boycott right. and the academic boycott um both norman finkelstein mm -hmm. who is very prolific pro-palestinian author an activist the son of holocaust survivors he has come out very strongly against this movement and its tactics as has noam chomsky famed linguist and foreign policy critic these are some senior people in pro-palestinian activism who've been around for decades who you would think would have some wisdom. I would go so far as to say for myself that those, those two names specifically are the people that made me actually think about it. Exactly. Yeah, me too. Me too. So uh, we actually have a little clip of Noam Chomsky talking about this very thing, which I think was relatively illuminating for me and touches on some of these same points that we've been talking about now. Well, let's hear it. You know, the hypocrisy rises to heaven I mean, yes, all of these are the right things to do. It's it's a hundred times worse in the United States, or in England, or in any other country you talk about. Why not why not call for that in the United States? It's a gift to Israeli and U.S. hardliners. The hypocrisy is so transparent that they just use it as a weapon to discredit the entire movement. Uh, and it's happened over and over, incidentally. Actually, long before this movement was started. Uh, organized. I was involved in BDS activities, uh, some of them the right kind, which could be helpful. Some of them, which I just got into for reasons of solidarity, for the wrong kind. So, for example, there was one here, right where we are, Harvard and MIT, uh, in 1970, uh, 2002, after Janine. That's you know before the BDS movement, this one got organized. And it was a pretty good statement. It, I thought it had just the right things. But the, the, the people who put it together insisted on three words, which I thought were a mistake. The words were to the universities and divest from Israel. Now, there's a reason why that's a mistake, because of the hypocrisy. Why not divest from the United States? First of all, every Israeli crime 
traces back to the United States. And remember, their support for U.S. support for Israel, which is decisive, is a fraction of U.S. crimes. And we can say the same about England and France and on and on. So this, those particular words could be attacked and were attacked as pure anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, that was with justice. Uh, so the president of Harvard immediately picked on them and made an impassioned speech saying, um, we've got to worry about anti-Semitism at Harvard. Okay, for the next couple of months, the only issue around here was anti-Semitism at Harvard, which doesn't exist. Uh, Janine disappeared, the Palestinians disappeared, and so on. So if you really want to harm the Palestinians, that was a good proposal. Uh, on the other hand, there are very good uh, BDS proposals, very effective ones. I've been in favor of them and, in fact, involved in them for years, even before this, uh, this uh, alleged movement began. Uh, they're ones that make sense. They target the occupation. Uh, first, uh, to, to, to be a decent tactic, these are tactics, not principles. A tactic has to meet at least two conditions. One, it has to be helpful to the victims, not harmful to them. And two, it has to be educational. That is, it, it's directed at somebody. It's symbolic, of course like other nonviolent actions. It's directed at somebody. It's directed at an audience. It has to help educate them, not miseducate them, so that then they'll be able to go on and take further actions. That's the whole point of civil disobedience. Okay, now, what are there are uh, many proposals that have exactly that effect. So, for example, those that call for, say, an end to U.S. arms sales to Israel has exactly that effect. If symbolic, of course, but if implemented, yes, it would benefit the Palestinians. Two, it educates Americans and Europeans, who are the crucial people here. It educates them because it gets them to focus at home. It's really easy to blame the other guy. You know, look at those awful people in Darfur and so on. Uh, it's a little harder to look into the mirror, but that's what counts. Look into the mirror, find out what we're doing, what we're responsible for, what we can change. Always crucial, and particularly crucial here, because what we're doing has a decisive influence on policy. So you want to educate people here to look at home, do the hard thing, and pay attention to what's going on here and try to change it. That's what we can do. Well, if you focus on arms sales, on corporations acting in the, operating in the occupied territories, on purchase of goods from the occupied territories, and so on. It meets those two criteria. On the other hand, if you say, let's boycott uh, Tel Aviv University, or let's uh, insist on boycotting Israel until they end internal repression, anybody with a brain is just going to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's no internal repression in the United States. Do we boycott Harvard, which is a much worse uh, property? So they're just going to laugh, and it's going to be a weapon in the hands of hardliners. Uh, South Africa, the real boycott movement, took off in around 1980. And by the time it took off, that was after decades of educational and organizational work, which had led to a situation in which there was virtually no support for apartheid. I mean, American corporations were beginning to pull out uh, for their own reasons. At Congress, it was beginning to pass uh, uh, sanctions and so on. There's nothing like that going on in this case because the work hasn't been done. So if you want the South African analogy, do the work. Okay, then when you get 
overwhelming opposition to the Israeli occupation and U.S. support for it, fine, then you can do these things. That's that was part of an interview with Noam Chomsky done by human rights activist Frank Barrett in September of 2010. Right. Yeah, that's it. To me, that, that seems fairly reasonable, too. I feel like ultimately Chomsky is right. I feel like um, there are very particular and justifiable targets that you can pick. Like he mentions, like we talked about SodaStream a few yeah. episodes back. He specifically mentions targeting corporations which uh, operate in, in the, the occupied, occupied territories. territories. And one point that Norman Finkelstein makes is that if you're going to use the basis of international law as your argument for ending the occupation, which most people like to do because there is a UN resolution every year calling for withdrawal from the occupied territories, then make that your basis. So you can 100% justifiably say, let's target these corporations who are actually operating outside of international law right. by being Israeli corporations on illegally op- occupied land. Rather than rather than targeting a state which on a legal basis has a right to exist. To exist. And I guess his claim is that some people are using the BDS as a thin veil for the for the destruction of Israel. That that is what he says. I think he uh, Finkelstein makes that point maybe a little too strongly. I think he attributes it with a little bit of a trigger finger but to th- the movement when I think you would find a lot of people in the movement that do not take that view. And he kind of implies that that is in fact the goal of this new BDS movement, right? which might be reaching. Whether that is your goal or not, by making Israel proper culturally, economically, academically, making a broad-based boycott and given the transparency of, of the double standard that can be destroyed by anyone making the argument that it is in fact an anti-Israeli, not an anti- Or anti-Semitic. Or anti-Semitic as opposed to an anti-colonialist- Or anti-occupationist. Anti-occupation movement. Didn't Chomsky actually, wasn't he one of the people who advised Stephen Hawking not to go to this academic conference? Some have called it an academic conference, but in the Israeli press, it's being called a presidential conference being okay. held by uh, Shimon Peres. So he's the current president and former prime minister. Right. So it could be that the labeling of this as an academic conference right. uh, could be... is a misnomer. A misnomer in order to make the... Uh, boycott by hawking of the conference seem more illegitimate yes in in, from from the perspective of people who are critical of the bds's overall strategy correct perhaps chris in the spirit of uh interrogating what we've seemingly decided we should give a more authoritative voice on the pro bds side you mean somebody more qualified than the israeli anarchist what happened to my voice? Uh, yeah, it would be ridiculous not to play something from the BDS. So what we have here is a clip of Palestinian activist and founder of the website Electronic Intifada, mm-hmm. Ali Abunama, responding to Chomsky's stance on the current BDS movement. This is compiled from an interview with Ali by Khalil Bendib on KPFA's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on January 13th. 2010. 
Okay, let's check it out and see how our minds change once again. I think I lost my voice from thinking so much. By and large, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel has been very careful about uh, calling for actions which are uh, not only morally justified, but uh, likely to be effective. So I would, I would agree with that. Where I would disagree with him is on the examples he gave, which uh, really seem not to leave any room at all for boycott, divestment, and sanctions in the case of Israel. For example, he he talked about uh, one shouldn't boycott a dance group. Well, you know, that's a very easy case to make if we think that dance is just about uh, culture and uh, is innocent of politics. But that's not the case at all here, because we know, because Israeli government ministers have said it publicly many times that Israel is using uh, cultural tours by uh, dance groups and other cultural groups sponsored by the Israeli government to burnish the image of Israel. So if we're saying that we're not going to protest those groups, we're not going to have boycott actions directed against Israeli government propaganda tours, then what we're saying is that we should give free reign to Israeli government propaganda and allow them to use dance and other uh, forms of art and film as a way to whitewash Israel's image so that the American public can think Israel is this lovely place which produces nothing but lovely modern dance while unseen and unheard are the voices of uh, people in Gaza and other parts of Palestine. I think it would be pretty immoral if we left the field open to uh, Israeli government-sponsored misuse of culture and art for propaganda purposes. I will always point people to the guidelines which have been issued by the uh, Boycott National Committee in Palestine, the guidelines for applying the academic and cultural boycott. These guidelines make a very clear distinctions about what is being boycotted and what isn't. So we're not boycotting someone just because they're an Israeli. The boycott is aimed at Israeli institutions, and there is a great deal of evidence that these institutions are very directly involved in the uh, military occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip in Israel's military industry. For example, just recently, Israel had a huge propaganda coup uh, because uh, one of the scientists at the Weizmann Institute won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. But what wasn't mentioned in any of the media coverage is that the Weizmann Institute in Israel is one of the chief, if not the main, places for the development of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons in Israel. Tel Aviv University as well has very close ties to the defense industry. And other universities like the Hebrew University have been directly involved in ethnic cleansing and displacing Palestinians from their homes in order to take over their land. So there's very direct complicity by Israeli institutions. What I find strange is that someone of Professor Chomsky's depth and knowledge should not be aware of how effective these sorts of tactics have been. You talked with him about South Africa where it's clear that the global BDS movement had a very important role, but here in the United States, the civil rights movement used boycott to great effect. 
There are other examples around the world. Uh, in the case of Northern Ireland, there were BDS-like tactics, the McBride principles, uh, which aimed at discriminatory hiring and so on. So there's a, a long history here that we can look at and we can say, well, what is likely to work and what isn't? And the good thing is the BDS movement by and large is doing that, having those discussions and debates. So I find it really quite misleading and I would say disrespectful to dismiss the BDS movement and all the work it's done as being somehow just a feel-good movement. I think that's very, very dismissive and misleading. Well, I agree with him too <laughs> on most of his points. Damn it. I think that on a moral basis, there is no disagreement between uh, Ali Abumina and Noam Chomsky. Except in terms of the issue of the hypocrisy of targeting Israel and not targeting the U.S., well, not targeting Canada. That is the difference between yeah. their positions, and yeah. it is the issue that Abumina does not address. And I think there were a few things uh, that came to mind there. One, he's talking about like Israel representing itself as just this cultural mecca uh, to, in order to whitewash you know, their policies at home. But again, the same thing can be said of Canada. Like, look at all the money that Canada gives to artists and musicians so they can go on tour around the world so they can release albums with their little Canadian flag logo on them mm -hmm. uh, for the funding. It's the exact same story. At the same time, the untold story of the misery of First Nations people in Canada mm -hmm. is covered up by, oh, you would think Canada just uh, is this bastion of culture and art. So... Again, it's the hypocrisy and how it can be attacked that I think is uh, is the key issue. Like he talks about these very clear guidelines that are set out, but when you go to the BDS movement website, uh, the guidelines are complete cultural boycott of Israel, right. complete academic boycott of Israel, right. complete economic boycott of Israel. Those are the guidelines. He says, well, it's not about boycotting individual Israelis. But, you know, the institutions are, they're all intrinsically linked to the occupation. Which, mm -hmm. Again, which is true. And again, which is true everywhere. Chomsky right. elsewhere talks about, you know, he works at uh, MIT. MIT and Harvard, the connections of these universities to the military industrial complex in the States mm -hmm. are massive. And the same with Canadian universities, you right. know, when it comes to... So per perhaps Ali's characterization of where he says, by and large... The BDS is is careful about uh, who gets boycotted. Maybe he's overstating that. Well, I think if you look at the track record and... You agree more with Chomsky. Right at this moment, it, it seems like... It yeah. seems like he makes yeah, more yeah. sense to me. But again, I mean, Ali Abumina, this is another person who has been doing tireless work on behalf of the Palestinian cause for many, many years. Yeah. He, um, he certainly doesn't come off as a crackpot in this, no, what he's talking about. Absolutely not. So um, I think there's reason to put a lot of weight behind his words uh, as well. So there you have it. Israel, Palestine in a nutshell <laughs> by Stephen Hawking. <laughs>
lots of people have been talking about these recent mass protest movements around, around the, the world. world. For example, in Turkey, yeah, thousands uh, gathering in Istanbul's Taksim Square, and in Brazil, where right now tens of thousands are filling the street in protests which started as part of the free transit movement, but have grown to encompass outrage at police violence and the dire social inequality in the country. Right. But just last year, Chris, yes, we had our own mass protest movement here in Canada, which we've somehow managed to completely. You and me. <laughs> you and me. That's not very mass. <laughs> which somehow we've managed to completely ignore on escape velocity radio. We did ignore it. Didn't we talk about it? Well, we ignored it. It was dubbed the Maple Spring or the Red Square movement and it involved thousands of students in the province of Quebec going on strike over that province's proposed tuition increases. For university but students, correct? For uni- post-secondary education, yes. Post-secondary. But it also, like these other movements, uh, grew to include people from all walks of life, covering all sorts of social issues. And at one point, there were half a million people on the streets in downtown Montreal in protest. Shopping. Well, today, Chris, I think we should break our long silence. I was able to sit down just this morning at 7 a.m. with Montreal activist and journalist Stefan Christoph. Hey, Stefan Christoph. He was in Winnipeg uh, doing a talk promoting a new publication that he put together as part of the Howell Arts Collective in Montreal, mm-hmm. which, quote, aims to bring movement-based reporting originally published online into a physical format and create a piece of cultural documentation on a key moment in Quebec popular history. Let us hear what he has to say. Stefan Christophe, thank you very much for joining us on Escape Velocity Radio. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so you're on a bit of a tour right now with this zine that you have released as part of the Howell Arts Collective. And it is called La Fond de l'Air est Rouge, which translates to the essence of the air is red. Why should people care about this? Well, I mean, obviously what happened in Quebec in 2012 was historic. And I don't use that word lightly. I think the scale of the protest movement led first by the students who made decisions in assemblies to strike, you know, very much in the classic sense of a political strike or what we were calling at the time and, you know, what would be understood as a grève politique, you know, a a political strike movement, which was aiming to unseat a very specific government policy that was being imposed on Quebec students, which was a massive hike in university tuition at around 80%, right? So the strike that took place was really unprecedented because of the numbers of people on strike, um, upwards of hundreds of thousands of students actually had strike mandates, you know, and beyond the the strike of the students, what happened in 2012, and that's why I say it's historic, is that it became a much broader social mobilization, you know, and many people throughout that process going into the spring of 2012, were talking about it as a social strike, right? So at that point, it wasn't just about uh, issues related to accessibility of post-secondary education. It became about uh, people demanding a broader social justice, but also re-envisioning and critiquing uh, Quebec society as it stands. So looking at issues around the environment, looking at issues around how our society is structured, 
is our society really democratic in the sense of um, how is our economy run? Um, so really deeper and broader questions that really aimed to critique and undercut uh, the neoliberal economic model that was being imposed on Quebec society by the former liberal government. Um, and that's really what the strike was about. I mean, you mentioned that it eventually expanded mm -hmm. to, you know, encompass a whole wide range of issues. Mm -hmm. um, but tuition was definitely the flashpoint mm -hmm. that started it. And to a lot of people outside of Quebec, and I'm sure outside of Canada, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. where a lot of our listeners are looking at, you know, the cost of tuition in Quebec, which is probably, I guess, the lowest in North America, mm -hmm. even after these proposed hikes. Can you help us understand the history of the struggle for accessible education in Quebec and why it is such a contentious issue? Well, sure. I mean, on a very basic level, Quebec went through a revolutionary period in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And, you know, I would really strongly recommend a book written by a historian named Sean Mills, which is called The Empire Within. And what the book uh, details is um, how social movements and organizing in Quebec society during that period, um, you know, a period that here in Canada we often understand or label the quiet revolution, you know, or revolution tranquille. That period was um, historic in terms of changing the nature of Quebec society, but also changing the nature of all of Canada, right? This is when Canada became a bilingual country. This is where Canada redefined itself to, to include the French language within its national identity in a very formalized way. Um, but all that was really in response to um, a liberation movement that was happening during that period, you know, and it wasn't a simplistically national liberation movement. It was really about re-envisioning how Quebec society should be, right? And so things like accessibility to education or the idea that education at a university level was a public right, you know, and that universities would be free and accessible. This was like a huge part of the social construction of how people understood Quebec could be, you know, this was in the late 1960s and early 1970s, right? So that idea of free education comes from that period, right? And that's why there's a very strong and significant portion of Quebec society that supports the idea of free education. It comes from that period in time. And so in 2012, you're talking about a generational pull of, of the movement too, right? Because many generations were participating in that in in that strike movement because it's rooted in that history and you know let's talk about you know when we talk about student strikes in in Quebec we talk about them in a sense of the strikes being real strikes these are not orchestrated strikes to negotiate with power these are strikes to assert a grassroots power on the street, right? And they're based in this concept, you know, that's very strong within the student federations in Quebec, but also that exists more broadly in Quebec society, which is called syndicalisme de combat. So like combative unionism, right? Okay. So the idea that as a union, you're not negotiating with power. As a union, you're asserting your demands and you assert your own power on the streets, 
and the the process of social change is rooted in the power of your action as a grassroots institution. And so in, in regards to history and what you're mentioning, right, there were many other strikes in, in the past in Quebec. This is not the first one. There's one recently that happened when Jean Charest, the liberal head of government in Quebec first came into office in 2005, but there was also strike in 1996. There was strikes in the 1970s. And those strikes, especially the one that happened in the uh, end of the 1970s, that was actually around abolishing tuition, right? So that idea of free university is part of the, the social fabric of struggle within Quebec society. And, you know, and when I say the social fabric of struggle, what I mean is that there's a, a significant support for that demand. You know, I can't give you a percentage, but you can say that you can see the multi-generational character of the protests in Quebec during the strike. And that was just really, really impressive to see the people of different generations coming out to support the students who are taking on the, the liberal government uh, in Quebec. And really they were taking them on not just about the tuition hike, but around the sort of austerity neoliberal model that they were trying to impose on Quebec. And, you know, the finance minister spoke openly and he kept using this term of imposing a revolution culturelle, a cultural revolution on Quebec. You know, and what he was talking about was basically trying to destroy public institutions, mm -hmm. you know, and place them into the, the volatile winds of the free market and away from the public interest. So when you talk about this unique history in Quebec and the, the unique sympathy that people in Quebec have to the strike movement, this kind of speaks to how the strike was represented in the media, sure. um, both within Quebec and on the on the national stage, mm -hmm. and also how it was perceived by people in the rest of Canada as well. So, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that? How the representations yeah, uh, sure. changed, and I think you touch on this uh, in the zine as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's particularly why I wanted to travel uh, to the rest of Canada and share the project with with people. This booklet project, and you know, I'll just say very pointedly that you know there there was a a lot of um, very specific ways in which the strike was misrepresented. Uh, so, you know, for example, the CBC, the national broadcaster in Canada, was consistently um, talking about the strike as a boycott of students, right? You know, um, so in that sense, when we're talking about the strike as a boycott, it's just totally inaccurate. I mean, of course, like, you know, there was many important political victories won by boycott movements globally. You know, we can talk about, you know, the boycott movement in solidarity with liberation struggles in South Africa, you know, and the boycott of corporations that were complicit in that or the current boycott movement in regards to uh, supporting the Palestinian struggle for, for freedom, right? Those are boycott movements. But, you know, the concept of the boycott is that, you know, as, as an organization or as an individual, you choose to not participate, you know, whether economically or to not buy a product. But we have to understand the strike not as a boycott. And the media kept saying it was a boycott. And I think that's very important. So it's 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 a strike, right? A, a grève politique. Because often a boycott is an individual act, whereas a strike is a collective act, right? And that collective nature of what was happening is very important, right? Because people were striking together and making decisions together in assembly. Students were, were enacting those strike mandates democratically, right? 
we're talking about assemblies of thousands of people voting to strike. So on a very uh, basic level in regards to grassroots democracy and how do we actually understand democracy, right? Like, I think that that's also a whole layer of what was happening in Quebec that the media wasn't representing. It was presented as if there was this group of students that were um, sort of uh, breaching process and, and taking the streets, but where in fact they had mandates to, to take the strike forward, right? There was democratic decisions made in all sorts of student assemblies at the college and university level in different departments to strike. And so it reached a fever pitch in March and April and May in 2012 across Quebec, where we had hundreds of thousands of people with strike mandates. And the media never seriously represented the, the, the process and how this strike was actually a legitimate process in terms of democratic process, but also it never represented the scale and the scope of what was taking place, right? And so I think it's really important to break down very specifically how the mainstream media coverage of what happened in Quebec was inaccurate. Just, just on a very technical sense, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's not accurate the way they described what was happening. And unfortunately, like any sort of uh, struggle around the world, you know, uh, we have to understand that media is aligned to power, right? And powerful interests, corporate power, state power, right? And that's, I think, was very clear during the strike and why why independent media and, you know, podcasts like this one are so important because it actually allows for a different perspective. And I think in the case of the Quebec strike, a perspective, you know, when we saw independent media and social media is so important for illustrating what was actually taking place on the streets and also in what was actually taking place in regards to the political process around the strike. So in light of all this, there was an extremely repressive response to the strike. Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, on the part of uh, the Quebec state to the protests, especially when they passed law 78. So tell us about the law and, and, and sure. its effect on sure. the movement. Well, I mean, we're in Winnipeg, right? And, you know, you can think about the history of repression around workers' unions here in, in, in Winnipeg in the early 1900s, right? And, and how the repression of the state actually pushed workers' unions to take massive strike mandates. You know, there, 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 there was the strike of 1919 here in Winnipeg. And it's interesting how state power's violent response can actually uh, bring people together. You know, and I think when we talk about what happened in Quebec in 2012, I am I'm mentioning this point of history in Winnipeg because it's a strike too, right? And uh, and we have to understand that you know students were on strike. Um, it, it wasn't a protest movement; it was a strike movement, and um, the state response was to try to shut it down. We're talking about a mobilization that's more similar on scale to you know some of the. Th movements we've been seeing, you know, in, in Greece, you know, people taking to the streets in opposition to neoliberal austerity measures that are being imposed on, on Greece, the cutting of the public broadcaster or, you know, uh, you know, basic public institutions, um, you know, that scale of mobilization that we've been seeing in Greece or in Spain with the indignados, um, this, the mobilization in Quebec was, you know, relative to our society, was on that type of scale. Um, so, of course, the state wanted to shut it down, and they tried to, but the repression was insane. I mean, it was very uh, intense, but it didn't work. And they imposed this law as the strike built 
and actually had already reached this really important point by where you actually had a huge portion of university students technically on strike, hundreds of thousands at this point. But the protest wasn't slowing down and the government was refusing at that point to negotiate with students. So you had this sort of rolling sort of day by day energy that was happening. You know, actions were happening, protests were moving, people were taking the streets at nighttime. There was huge demonstrations, some of the largest in Quebec and Canadian history, hundreds of thousands of people. The students were starting to organize economic disruption. So they were taking their protest also to the levers of corporate power that were backing the government's plan to to attack accessibility to, to university education that were backing the the proposed tuition increase so they were taking actions within the world trade center of montreal you know you mm -hmm. have the global sort of stock exchange so students were blockading the entrances they were blockading the port of montreal which was the idea was that if power won't negotiate with you you have to search a political force on the street and and assert your own power and that's what i was talking about earlier in regards to this concept of syndicalisme de combat combative unionism so the response of the state was to try to shut it down and they imposed in may this law was called loi spéciale you know the special law it sounds very <laughs> draconian or cold war-ish or something yeah. Um, but it, it, it actually backfired. And that's, that's what really catapulted the movement to this whole different level, because you had at that point, the law was banning protests. You know, they basically said any sort of protest needs permission from the state to go forward, not just the state, but the police also. And, um, at a very basic level, people rejected that on yeah. mass and their response was to protest without permission. Right mass civil disobedience hundreds of thousands of people participating in that civil disobedience and that's when people went out from their homes inspired by a tradition from latin america which was called the casserole you know where people went with pots and pans it started just quite uh, autonomously in different neighborhoods where people's response to this loi spéciale the special law was to hold their pots and pans out the window and bang them and say, well, we won't submit to this authoritarian law. And the students at that point were a significant part of the movement, but then it became a social movement to fight against the banning of, of public expression on the streets, right? So I think the Walter Benjamin often talks about this concept of creeping fascism. Walter Benjamin, the philosopher and artist from you know Europe uh, during pre-fascist era you know that idea that within any society there's a constant struggle to keep space liberated to keep space free to keep that political space to fight for different ideas open i'm not saying what happened in quebec was out out and out fascist nothing close to that sort of level of repression but you can see how the state justifies sort of in, in discourse and in, in action, the idea that in order to sustain the social order and the economic order, that it will pull out whatever measures it needs to, to ensure that that order is sustained. Uh, you know, there's remixes on that order, you know, in terms of different, you know, whether it's a social democratic government or neoliberal government, there are pretty big differences to that. But what this movement was doing, it was a revolutionary movement, right? 
And that's what was happening. And, and that's why the response was so violent, because they were scared of, of this power and scope of mobilization. I mean, we're talking about every day for weeks on end across Montreal, like tens of thousands of people in different demonstrations. Like you could go to different areas of the city and just listen for the protest and the police helicopters. Like yeah. there were there was protests at one point in like six to 10 different areas of the city every night, you know, banging pots and pans, tens of thousands of people in each of these protests. So it was a significant moment. And this booklet is mainly to try to communicate in English what, what happened from a very street-oriented perspective because I was a participant in what happened. So you mentioned uh, earlier a little bit of the, the connections between the Quebec strike movement and other movements that have been going on in the last couple of years and are happening currently. For example, uh, in Brazil, the, the uh, protests around uh, transit fares, which are also now expanding to include all sorts of fundamental social issues in Turkey, uh, in Taksim Square, uh, the same thing is happening. So can you speak a little bit about, uh, you know, the connections that you see there and, you know, how the, the, the student strike or the so-called Maple Spring, you know, might fit into that puzzle? Well, it's complex, right? Um, but I do think there are connections to draw, as you said. I agree with you. We live in a context within Canada where you have certain public institutions you know for example we have universal health care you know there's problems with it but we have to understand that that was something that was fought for and mainly came out of social movement organizing the state is not benevolent you know and and and, and so in the sense of that combative unionism and what was happening in quebec was about asserting the idea that we need to fight to change society Society won't be changed by government, by power. They will protect a certain status quo. And what the strike was about was re-envisioning society. And I think we're seeing that same process happening around the world, right? That re-envisioning of society. Because we live, let's say, here or, you know, in Western Europe or in all of Europe, actually, if we're talking about Greece or Spain or Turkey, you can put up quotation marks and say these are democratic societies like Erdogan's government in Turkey was elected in quotations, right? But is this truly a democratic process, right? Like how do we understand that concept of democracy? How are people actually engaged and involved in politics on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Are our democratic structures actually fulfilling the possibility of real political engagement at a community-based level, but also across society, right? And if we are democratic societies, why do we constantly have technocratic politicians, especially in Europe now, deciding that basically people have to bail out banks and that austerity needs to be imposed to save an economic order that actually holds the real power, right? I mean, if we're talking about the real power in, a, in our society, it's not government, it's corporations and um, the dollar, right? And I don't want to say that in a cliche sense, but, you know, we're, 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 we can see, like, in our experience in Quebec, who was backing the tuition hike? It wasn't just the government. It was all the corporations of Quebec society that support the government, right? And so really what this was about was a battle between 
corporate power and state power as asserted by, you know, the government of the liberals of Quebec and people on the streets who wanted a different vision of society. But through asserting that idea of a different society and, you know, the scale of mobilization that we saw in Quebec, those, as I was sort of pointing to, those sort of spaces of reimagining where we could go were opening, right? Like, you know, ideas around anarchism, ideas around uh, how how do we understand democracy? You know, and that that's what it was most important about the strike because you had hundreds of thousands of people, 18 to, you know, people in their 20s, people even younger than that, 16, 17-year-olds who were participating in the strike and in general assemblies to sustain strike mandates. And for hundreds of thousands of people, that experience stays with them forever. And it's a very empowering experience and it changes their lives, right? And I think that that's what's so important about what happened in Quebec. And that's a victory, actually, because you have hundreds of thousands of people who are politicized by a process of direct democracy, real democracy, grassroots democracy, um, street level protest democracy. Right. So to that end, where has that led? Where has the movement led to now? The the charade government fell uh, in the fall of last year, due in part to the uh, the strike oh, and how it was handled. Yeah. Well, I mean, the election in Quebec, the last election, was called as a response to the strike because the government was trying to shift the political debate from the streets because they weren't controlling the streets. Right. right? That that the, the people were controlling the streets. They're trying to move the political debate from the streets into the realm of sort of liberal electoralism, right. you know, and and the political process, right? Which they're so much more in control of. Right. That's what the election was about. And they lost the election. They gambled wrong, you know, and it's re- they called the election because of the strike and they lost the election because of the strike. They fell out of power. So you can say, in a sense, the students overturned the government. And so now with the uh, Parti Quebecois yeah. uh, in power, they canceled the tuition hikes. Yeah. So you can say definite success on sure. that front. Yeah. But where does that leave the student movement now? And... and the masses of people radicalized by the experience. Sure, yeah. um, you know, what are, what are we seeing that's, that's come out of it? No, I, I see your point. And, and the point, you know, I, just bouncing off what you said is that the process is constant, right? You know, the struggle to change society is, that's what was happening, right? And it, it sort of asserted itself in this very public way during the strike. And that's really important. But that struggle will continue, Right. And because there's a new government in power, it's the Parti Québécois. But this is a government that also is adopting a sort of, you know, maybe a bit softened neoliberalism, but it's still adopting the sort of neoliberal framework and understanding of economics and how society should run. Um, So people will fight that government, too, because they at the end of the day, the dreams and the visions of society that were expressed on the streets during the strike will not be answered by neoliberalism and will not be answered by sort of a a corporate controlled economy that puts the interests of, you know, profit margins of companies first above people's basic dignity. So Stefan, where can people get the zine? 
it's online howlarts.net slash words so you can order it online it's it's actually on that page i mentioned howlarts.net slash words i've also listed in different cities where people can pick it up okay well we will put a link to uh to the site in the show notes and yeah thank you so much for taking the time to uh talk with us today on escape velocity radio stefan what's well, totally my pleasure thank you. the future my has never looked so bleak and the conniving Derek, last month you promised a listener that you would provide them with a copy of Dave Zirin's Game Over. I did. I did? Yeah. With money out of your own pocket. I don't I don't remember this at all. Well, you did. Yes, I did. Okay, fine. I did. We received some entries. We did. Yeah, some some interested listeners who wanted to uh who wanted to win Dave Zirin's book, Game Over. Yeah, an interesting cast of characters wrote in Derek. I think we have an interesting cast of listeners. And the winner the winner that we have is Was named Christian Beale. The star of Batman series. <laughs> is that your real name, Christian Beale? Is it really Christian Beale? Do you get teased everywhere you go? Do people come up to you and go, Hey Christian, are you the Batman? Is that what happens? Does Michael Caine come in and take your pajamas off in the morning and put on a tuxedo for you? Well, anyways, Christian. Congratulations. Congratulations. Your letter, your heartfelt, interesting letter. It, apparently, Christian Beale was um, being groomed to be some sort of uh, pro-level uh, pitcher. Anyways, his dreams were dashed against the rocks of reality as, you know, as were mine in my life. In general about unrelated unrela- sports related to sports oh. actually i never had any fucking dreams hey let's do the uh let's do the giveaway for this month yes i think that's a great idea so we had our guest uh stefan christoph on talking about his publication we could Le- give that away Le fond de l'air et rouge and we also have a copy of a music project that he is involved in is it duets for apple Isaac? it is not oh uh it is entitled temple libre and what is that? Which translates to free time. Yeah. And uh, it is the first release from the St. Laurent Piano Project. And it's... Which it's, is a recording series initiated by Stefan Christoph. And he's playing on it? And he's playing piano on it. So we're going to do the CD and the booklet together. So go to the website, escapevelocityradio.com slash raffle. Put in your name and email address. Tell us why you're interested in Stefan Christoph's face. And we will give you his face if you are the lucky winner. Okay. All right, then. We eagerly await your very unbelievable emails. Derek, that seems to be about all the time we have for today. Should we mention to the people that we're moving to a mid-month release schedule? Yes, I think we should. People, we are moving to a mid-month release schedule. Do you know why, people? Because 
Currently, when you release an episode on the first of every month, you miss all the fun holidays like Halloween and Christmas, and you can't really have a Christmas episode or a Halloween episode. That's true. So we want to remedy that. Yeah. Also, you're going on tour next month, and we probably wouldn't have time to do an episode for the first of August anyway. Right. So that helps. Yes. So look for us mid-August for episode 12. Thanks for tuning in for episode 11 of Escape Velocity Radio. The show is produced, recorded, and edited by Barack Obama. We want your feedback. Email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or leave us a voicemail on Skype at username Escape Velocity Radio or by calling 701-213-4483, which will expire in a month and we're not going to renew it because no one ever uses it. So fucking call us. To join the discussion about this episode or to check out the show notes, visit our website, Visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you're not already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or sign up for our email list to be notified when each new episode is available. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud. Those links and our email sign-up form can be found on our website at escapevelocityradio.com. I'm going on summer vacation. 